Good evening, She Rises. Hope everyone's having a great uh, evening, great Thursday. Coming on to get started with week five of our Attending the Bride of Christ slash Becoming a Wise Bridesmaid study. Gonna let everybody start to get their notifications. I'm not sure how many notifications are going out right now. But give you just a minute to get your Bible, your notebook together. This week we are looking at messages from the bridegroom. Messages from the bridegroom. So if you want to um, just send up likes, let us know where you're studying with us from. We were able to see if our comments are coming in, that way if there's any questions, can make sure to answer them. I don't know if the comments will show up on my section. It's hit and miss every week, but if not, I can get to them after the study. It doesn't seem like I can see any, just as showing me... Um, certain people getting on. So anyway, I may not be able to answer questions tonight and never know which way Facebook's going <laughs> on any given time, but that's okay. Um, the goal is to record this and then I can come back and look at questions afterwards. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we are going to go ahead and get study um, started with our study this week on messages from the bridegroom. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for this night. Um, just for the opportunity to gather from wherever we are across this planet to dig into your word and to hear what it is that your spirit says to us, your bride. I just pray for every woman that will be on at some point to hear this study, to sit with you and to dig in, that your spirit would just speak to them. Lord, that you would allow the seeds of the truth of your word to fall among the fertile soil of their lives, Lord, and produce for you an abundant harvest of righteousness in these last days. Now, Lord, would you give us ears to hear and hearts that would be attentive to what your spirit says to the churches? Would you equip us, correct us, encourage us, Whatever it is that we individually need, Father, to return and to remain to you during these times. May our hearts cry, be speak, for your servant is listening. Lord, we thank you for the messages that you have left us during this betrothal phase, that we might remember how very much you love us and how faithful and true you are to your promise to return for us. We ask all of these things in your holy and matchless name, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, girls. So we are going to go ahead and dig in to messages from the bridegroom. One of the things we know is that we're in the caduceian phase, is what this is kind of known as, the betrothal phase. And that the preparations during this time are extremely consuming. They can be extremely challenging. And the bride needs reassurance that her efforts are on track and that the groom has not forgotten her. And so we're going to see tonight as we go through Martha's study on messages from the bridegroom, 
what has actually been left to us during this betrothal period really for our strengthening as a reminder but for our strengthening there are so many wonderful messages here of love and warning and correction and hope and encouragement and so we don't want to miss those tonight we'll look at four important messages from the bridegroom to his bride and I'm going to start with four of the foundation of the messages that are coming to build upon as we finish in Revelation 2 and 3 tonight with the letters to the bride. So if you want, you can flip over with me to Matthew 16. See, as we read through the scriptures tonight, we're going to be reminded of our divine identity as the bride. And his word is going to challenge us to remain faithful, especially in a world that seeks to pull us away from our faithfulness and our set apartness and our purity to our bridegroom. You see, one of the things that makes our relationship with Jesus, us as his bride, with Jesus so unique, is that he created her. He created her. See, the church was basically formed in the womb of the earth, of Jesus's earthly ministry. And yet it was the spirit of God that breathed life into her at Pentecost, just as what happened to man and woman at the beginning of creation. So her formation, her existence is going to provide valuable insight into how Jesus actually views his bride. The first thing I want you to note is that the church, the bride, the corporate body coming together, that bride belongs to Christ. In other words, she exists at his will. Matthew 16, look with me at verses 13 through 19 so that you can take some notes. You can answer questions. I'll look at them afterwards. Starting at verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So Jesus asked the disciples a question. And so they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, do you say that I am? And so Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. All right, he then finishes with this statement, and I will give you 
the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Listen, notice Jesus's I will declaration. Pay attention to that there in Matthew 16. I will build my church. In other words, the bride exists as a result of Christ's will, of Yahweh's will and their work. They are the ones building the church. We talked about this last week. We don't save anyone. We are simply the messengers offering the invitation, pointing them to the truth. Jesus is the one reaping the harvest. His spirit is the one doing the work through us. But she, she exists at his will, not man's. See, we need to remember that in a day where man, where the world fights so hard against the church. And it's nothing new. From generation to generation, for centuries, man, by the work of the enemy through him, has worked so hard to put an end to Christianity, to cause the church to cease to exist, to ravage the bride, to assault her, to attack her, and yet nothing Nothing has ever worked. Why? Because the church doesn't exist at man's will. It only exists at God's will. When we can move outside of this idea, we begin to understand our vital role in attending the bride of Christ. How important our participation is in the bride, in the body. Individually, we're not the bride. Corporately, we are. And so our participation is the reflection. It's the reflection of his spirit and his will for the church, for the bride. See, the church has received this betrothal covenant, this divine charter, and it will never be revoked. It doesn't guarantee an individual will be a part of it. That's up to the work of the Spirit and our saying yes, accepting the invitation and walking in obedience with him. But the bride, the corporate bride, the body of Christ will never cease to exist. No matter how often she is attacked, she will always stand. She will always be victorious. Why? Because her future is secure in the hand of her bridegroom. If you notice, he uses in Matthew 16, verse 18, look at what he says. Who owns the church? You can type that in. Who owns the church? Is it Man, is it the members or is it Jesus? Well, if you look at verse 18, you should notice that Jesus owns the church. It is his bride. It is his possession. And he is committed 
to building her up. That Greek word for build, I will build my church, he says, is orkodiomi or diomo. And it means to build up or to strengthen. So his whole goal is literally to strengthen her, his bride, to make her stronger. And yet he's saying he's the one who's going to build her. She will only be built his way. So the church belongs to Christ and exists at the will of God. Number two, the church is only founded on the truth of who Christ is. It's not built upon the opinions of man or how they try to write or script Jesus to the world to attract the world in hopes that that might draw them in. That leads you to another gospel and another Christ. The church will only be built on the truth of who Christ is and what his word has already revealed about him. In fact, on Matthew 16, verse 18, again, what does Christ say that he will build his church upon? He says, on this rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Isaiah 28, verse 16 actually points out to us in the Old Testament about this rock. It is the cornerstone. It's the chief foundation of the building that holds it all together, that supports it. Without it, it will never stand. It doesn't matter what else is built. Without the chief cornerstone, it will never stand. It has no foundation. And so the rock, without a doubt, is Jesus Christ, is Yeshua. That is the rock, the firm, the lasting foundation, no other. And so when Simon becomes a disciple, the question is asked here that we read. And Yeshua is going to give Simon a new name. And that name we say in English is Peter, but that name actually was Petros. Petros is the name that he gives him, and that literally means a pebble or stone. That's actually the Greek meaning of the word Petros. Regrettably, many have confused this word and they've created doctrines built upon false teachings. And so unfortunately, people become confused and they actually make Peter the cornerstone of the church. Well, Peter was some first pope or title that they want to give him because of this one statement taken out of context and it doesn't even line up with the actual words being used here. See, what happens is when you read it in the Greek, this is what actually is said. And you are Petros, meaning a pebble or a stone. And on this Petra, meaning large rock, I will build my church. You see, in Hebrew, they would use these play on words. The Hebrews did that all the time, these play on words for this 
specific meaning. And Yeshua, Jesus, is using a play on words here for Peter to understand something. You, Peter, are the stone. You are the pebble. And it's upon this large rock that I will build my church. In essence, here's what he's saying. I'm not building my church on who you are. You're just the little pebble. You're a little stone. I'm building it on who I am. And so, Peter, your profession that you just made right now will be like every little pebble and little stone that's built up into a house upon the large rock, the cornerstone, the foundation of who I am and the very statement that you just made, Peter, when you declared you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is upon that statement of who I am as the rock that every little pebble and stone will be built up into the church. That's how the church will be built. You will not come in any other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is no other religion that you can come into. It doesn't matter how many people want to argue against that or how spiritual we want to believe we are. Either Jesus is a lunatic and a liar or he's telling the truth. But you can't have both. You have to pick one. You can make a decision, but you can't have both. And so here he says, the church is going to be built on the truth of who I am. Nothing more, nothing less. Peter understood that Christ was the rock. He was the foundation. And unfortunately, not everyone is going to share this understanding. Even when they hear this, they will run away from this truth because it stings the flesh. And we're looking for other ways, easy ways to come into the kingdom. Some believe that Jesus was a good man, that he was a prophet. Others feel he's just some legendary historical figure. But we know that while different opinions of Yeshua, of Jesus, will always exist, that it's these perceptions that lead away from the bridegroom, and yet our relationship is built on the truth that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is our perfect Passover lamb. The church is built on the truth of the identity of who he is. Once you change his identity, once you distort his identity, you begin to move away from the truth of the foundation to shifting sand. Number three, the church has been given spiritual power and divine authority. See, Jesus says here as well, I've given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those keys for the bride grant her divine authority. They grant her spiritual power. Look at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That might sound like a strange phrase. But to the disciples, it wouldn't have been. That was terminology they would have used 
quite often. If we bring it into modern day terms, basically what they're saying in English is whatever you forbid will be forbidden. Whatever you permit will be permitted. Again, this isn't something that this secular culture or apostates or false converts are going to like, that the church has this kind of authority on the earth. In fact, the enemy has fought against it for centuries of any kind of authority. Who are you to tell us what we're permitted to do or what we're forbidden to do? But listen, this statement that you read here is not about us as humans getting God to do our will on earth. It has nothing about whatever we tell you, we permit God, you go ahead and permit it. And whatever we tell you, we forbid on earth, you go ahead and forbid it. That is not what this scripture means. What he's saying to them here is, I have given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You now have my spirit, the mind of Christ. You have my authority and my power. Why? Because you know my word. You know my identity. You know who I am. You know by the great commission what to teach, to teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And so whatever you permit on earth is going to be according to his will. And whatever you forbid on earth is going to be forbidden in his word. It's according to his will. In other words, they are getting done on earth what God has willed in heaven. That's why we pray that. So we have been given the authority to take God's will in heaven and permit and forbid it here on earth because it lines up with his will in heaven, right? Now, what do you think he means when he says that the gates of Hades will not prevail? Well, it means that Christ has made the bride, the church, secure. She's guaranteed her victory. We talked about this last right, I mean last week. Evil will not overtake the church. It does not mean that it will not fight against the church. It does not mean that it cannot wound us. It will. But it will never have victory over the church. It's already lost. Losers hate to lose. And in their embarrassment, they become angry. And the angrier they become, the harder they fight, even though they stand no chance of winning. And so the gates of Hades represents this organized power of evil under the control of dark spiritual forces, the enemy. They fight against the bride, against the church, opposing her at every turn, opposing the gospel, the truth of the word. It is their job to persecute believers, to weaken their faith. Throughout history, the church's enemies have fought to destroy her. It is nothing new. Where in the world, in our generation, we got the idea that all of mankind will love us and agree with us and we're supposed to be unified with them and everything we're going to say will not offend them and make them hate us is again a huge deception and yet so expected in this apostasy where spiritual discernment 
is lacking. The world is going to hate us. Now, we don't want to give them reason to hate us by going around and just acting rude and screaming at people and degrading them and name-calling. No, that's not the goal of the church. But the goal of the bride is to be set apart, to be pure, to look different from the world, to speak truth, to not compromise, to expose evil things. And so once all those things start happening and the Holy Spirit in the bride begins to convict the world of its sin, its only response is to hate the world. And yet the gates of Hades will not prevail. Look, look around in society today. The opposition to the truth of God's word continues to grow. In many parts of the world, persecution is on the rise. And I'm telling you, it is here in America. Persecution has now opened the door and the enemy and his seed are only going to get louder. Why? Because the enemy knows his time is short. And so the bride will be ridiculed. She will be mocked. Take a look on social media. Anytime you say something about Christ, the one who rejects and is angry, they love the laughy emoji. They can't wait to throw it up. Why? Because it's this idea that if I mock you and I laugh at you, this is a form of persecution. And yet the Lord is not laughing about the eternity of these souls that are rejecting him. And so now we're going to move in to Revelation 2 and 3 to finish out the night so that we understand that as the bride has been given spiritual power and divine authority, as she is secure and assured of victory, as she is built upon the foundation of the truth of Christ and his identity, that there are messages that we have been given to cling to in the midst of this betrothal period that we have been left in. It is meant to establish us as a firm foundation. Number one, the message from the bridegroom is keep me first. Keep me first. Look, in the marriage contract between the Christ and his bride, we see in our priceless ketubah here, there are so many encouragements for us. So many promises we're meant to cling to. There's loving rebukes. There's warnings to us that at times don't seem pleasant. But each of these messages are meant to offer us a unique perspective so that we remain firm and stand assured during the time that we've been left while our bridegroom is away. Revelation chapter 1 tells us who the book of Revelation was written by. It was written by John, but it was written by John for the purpose of writing to the church, to give it to the bride. It's this passionate desire from our bridegroom to communicate with his bride, to leave her divine messages. Understand this, the book of Revelation, 
specifically the letters, they are not to the world. They are not for any unbeliever. They were specifically written to the church, the bride, those professing to call him Lord, those showing up to meet with the body so that they are the bride, those who say that they love the Lord and they follow Jesus, those who say that they're serving him and doing their works for him. As you listen to these messages tonight, it will be extremely important that you do not leave the understanding that this message, these messages were written to the church. I want you to look with me in Revelation chapter 1 at verse 20. Go with me to Revelation 1. We're going to first look at verse 20. Because we're going to look at a little bit of history here to gain a deeper understanding. All right. Here's what verse 20 tells us. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now listen, go ahead and type in for me, what does scripture tell us that the golden lampstands represent? Okay, go ahead and write that down or type that in for me. What do the golden lampstands represent? Hopefully you are already typing or you are writing down that the lampstands represent the church, the bride. All right. Now look, we know that the book of Revelation is a mixture. It's a mixture of a lot of literal things. There's a lot of literal messages and literal truths in the book of Revelation, but there is also a lot of symbolization, a lot of symbols. And by the Spirit, you have to be able to discern between the two or you end up with what we have in our world today. A lot of false teaching from Revelation, a lot of false denominations running with all kinds of theologies because they make the whole book all literal or they make the whole book all symbolic and they're not discerning by the Spirit. This lampstand is symbolic of the church. It is a representation of the church. But if you don't understand the lampstand, then you're even going to miss the symbol of it in Revelation. So because of that, I want you to go with me over to Exodus. All right? Go with me to Exodus chapter 25. And I want us to learn for a few minutes about the actual lampstand, all right? Exodus 25, I'm going to read verses starting at verse 31, and I'm going to read through 40. So I want you to pay attention, write, jot down any notes that you want to, to gain a better understanding of the lampstand. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bolts, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, 
So three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls, three bowls shall be made with like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be one piece. All of it shall be hammered as a piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. And they shall arrange its lamp so they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. You see, the Lord's already given us the pattern for the way things are to be done we don't get to come in and rewrite how things can be explained or be done. Be careful to only do things according to the pattern that was shown to you, lest you get arrogant and prideful and believe you're working for God, but instead you're in complete disobedience to him. This lampstand, he told Moses, Make according to the pattern. Now pay attention in Revelation 1 that we just read, how many lampstands does John see? How many lampstands does John see? Seven. He sees seven lampstands. And if you remember studying Matthew 25 with me about the wise and the foolish bridesmaids, the virgins... What are the wedding attendants carrying to meet the bridegroom? What are they carrying? Lampstands. They're lamps filled with oil, right? All right. So now remembering this, all this information you now have, flip back with me to Matthew 5 because this should now help make sense of what Jesus actually says to his disciples, all right? So Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to just read verses 14 um, through 16. All right, here's what he says. You, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, what, based on what we're just reading right here in scripture, by the way, if there's nothing else I've taught on in all my years of writing and teaching um, Bible studies, these women's studies, I hope 
you have understood my point of why I tell you there is no such thing as your religion with Christ, your religion of Christianity, your relationship with Christ being a private matter. Nothing, nothing private about it. The Great Commission throws that out the door. But now this adds on to. <laughs> you cannot hide your light from the world at all. Nobody who's a true Christian does that at all. And so according to Matthew 5, tell me, what does Jesus not tell us to do? What does he not tell us to do? Is it, does he tell us not to be the light of the world? That as individual believers, we are not the light of the world? Does he tell us that we should not put our lamps on a lampstand? Or does he tell us that we should keep our lamps hidden in our home? That they're just for us. They should just kind of be hidden in our home, put it kind of under a bowl so nobody sees or knows that we have it. Which one is not true? Well, hopefully you're going to say that there is nowhere in Scripture where Jesus says to go and keep your lamps hidden in your home, to hide it away so that nobody sees it or knows about it. So then if we understand now, looking at the picture of Moses within the temple, the lampstand that was made, it was meant to burn oil in order to shine the light. And in Revelation, we discover that the lampstand represents, it's a symbol of the church, the bride of Christ. Then what might the individual lamps, the individual lampstands represent? What do you think they would represent? Would it represent the church building? Or would it represent individual believers? The little stones, the little pebbles. Well, we know it represents individual believers. The lampstand itself represents the church built upon the foundation of Christ. Solid. Solid. And we understand that Jesus just used the lamp as this illustration for individual believers. You are the light of the world. So by telling us to put our lamps on the lampstand, which we know represents the church, he's confirming each individual's place. Your important part in attending the bride of Christ, of being a part of putting the church on display to be a light for the world. According to the pattern that he has set for his lampstand, his church is not built any other way. It's not built on any other foundation. We don't get to write other scripts or other ideas, or create other um, views of Jesus, or his disciples, or the church, or anything. It's solely built upon the truth of who he's already revealed that he is. The lampstand, as John talks about regarding the early churches, still applies to us today. Why? 
Because if you look in Revelation 1, again, in verse 13, Yeshua, Jesus says something. He says, he walks among the lampstands. He walks among the lampstands in the midst of them. This literally means that he is the one who walks among the churches. He is the one who is inspecting the bride, making judgment over her preparations and if she's ready. And so now as we consider the messages written to us here in Revelation, I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart and see how you individually measure up within the greater picture of the church. Are you a wise bridesmaid? Filling your lamp with the oil of his spirit built on the foundation identity of the truth of who he is? Or are you a foolish bridesmaid? Keeping everything hidden and kind of creating Christ in your own image. We come first to Ephesus. Keep me first, he says. Ephesus, a church, area, a city filled with pagan idolatry, doctrines of demons, new age practices, dominated by the worship of Diana. It was a very rich seaport city. And you see, the church at Ephesus actually enjoyed great leadership under Paul. In fact, this is a church that Paul himself had planted. He spent more time with her than any other church. And then Timothy and John helped to root her, to care for her. Early church history actually tells us that John the Apostle was one of her pastors. The problem is it could be that Ephesus relied too much on their human leadership, though. In other words, they slowly started losing sight that Jesus was actually the head of the church, that he was the bridegroom. Look at Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Notice how Jesus identifies himself, the one who holds the seven stars, the messengers, and he walks among the lampstands. See, he is the one inspecting her. And he tells her, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know the perseverance among you, but... So he starts with some encouragement because there's encouragement to give here, by the way. He commends her and he recognizes her hard work. And yet while the church of Ephesus did many good works, many good things for Christ, she was actually forsaking him. She had left her first love. See, this warning, this rebuke that he's giving to the church publicly for them all <laughs> is that you can spend all your time laboring 
for God, which pleases him, by the way. God does expect us to do work. He's just the one who equips us by his spirit to do it. It's not natural for us to do in our flesh. But even though you can do all of this laboring for Christ, even though you may endure hardship for his name, you can still end up neglecting him by being in an intimate relationship with him, spending time with him in the word, thanking him, enjoying being in his presence. You see, preparing for a wedding day, which is what we are doing, is rarely easy. As a bride, if you think about all the work that has to be done to get ready for the wedding and all the invitations that need to be sent out as the guest list is being compiled, all of the preparations that need to be done, her hope is in this being an amazing wedding day, but you don't forget your groom, do you? How selfish would it be if you never thought about the one you were getting ready to marry? If you never asked for his desires in preparing? If everything you were doing wasn't solely to please him on the wedding day, which then becomes all about you? And yet Jesus, who is consistently attentive to his bride, consistently faithful to her, he comes in and he warns her and he instructs her to repent. He sends the message through John. Jesus doesn't appear in the middle of the church in his physical body. He doesn't stir them individually in their spirits to be convicted. He sends a messenger by his spirit through his word to use the spirit to draw her to conviction. See, that's where we're in danger today with this false teaching that God doesn't use his body to rebuke and to publicly warn and to expose. That Jesus only speaks to each individual privately and stirs their spirit. Or he'll only appear to them in a vision or a dream. He would never use another believer to speak his actual words. You don't see that in scripture. John gives this message to the church and it is a loving rebuke with the goal of driving her to repentance. That the bride's faith may return to her bridegroom to keep him first. To return to doing what they did at first. Sardis. We come to the church of Sardis located about 50 miles east of Ephesus. A very wealthy city. Revelation chapter 3 shows us the picture of Sardis not keeping him first. Jesus says, I am the one who holds the seven spirits of God. If you study Isaiah, you begin to understand the listing of the spirits, the seven spirits which make up the Holy Spirit, which represent the spirit and the character of Yahweh, Elohim himself. And so he reveals that he is the one that holds those seven spirits. It is his spirit that was breathed into the church that makes it alive. And yet, 
he offers little encouragement to this church. Look, here's another distorted view in our society today. That everybody that comes and speaks to you and brings a message can only tell you positive things. That they can only tickle your ears and build you up. And that that's the only thing you're going to listen to. If that is your belief, you are now in a very dangerous position. And you are setting yourself up to be taken captive and carried away in the apostasy. You see, there was no real encouragement for Sardis. However, there was hope and there's a difference. Look at verses 4 and 5 in Revelation 3. 4 and 5. He says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Listen to what scripture just said. It is not difficult. His words are very simple and plain here. He says, there are only a few of you in this church. This is not unbelievers. This is people professing to call him Lord. In other words, he's saying there are only a few wise bridesmaids here. The majority of you are foolish. And what happens to the foolish? They do not get into the wedding. The door is shut on them and they are cast away because the Lord doesn't really know them. In other words, he says the few, there are a few who have not soiled their garments. They are the ones who will receive the white wedding garments and walk with him. They are the ones who will actually be found worthy. So in other words, according to the scripture, answer this. Will everyone in the church here enter in and get wedding garments? According to this, is everyone just because they call him Lord and say, I've made a, I said, I believed, or I am a part of the church. These people are still active in the church. Are they all getting wedding garments? No, they're not. That's why he says to him who overcomes. I meaning, meaning those of you who repent and return and remain like those who have not soiled and defiled their garments. If you do that, you will also receive the white wedding garments. But if you will not watch, he says in verse 3, I will come on you like a thief. Look, Jesus returning as a thief actually in scripture is only upon unbelievers. He will come upon them as a thief because they were not looking for him. They were not expecting him. He says, if you will not watch, watch for what? For the bridegroom's return. Do you wonder why in our generation and through the centuries, Satan masquerading as a minister of righteousness has crept into the church with the idea that 
the book of Revelation or watching for his return or studying the prophecies and looking does not matter. It's irrelevant. That's not things we need to concern ourselves with, really. Well, then I don't even know why he wrote most of it in scripture. And number two, why does he tell us, if you will not watch, I'll come on you as a thief. You can't be coming on a thief if somebody's watching. See, the foolish bridesmaids weren't watching. They're not prepared. As soon as he wakes them up, they still don't get to watching. They're off busying themselves trying to figure out how they can buy oil. Well, who's going to sell it to me? How can I take from someone else? Because they don't really know the source of the oil. Not just that. How amazing it is that apparently they weren't even studying and paying attention to his first coming. And it's why so many missed it. There was only a handful that recognized Messiah was here because of the Spirit of God. Most of them had long put behind them the scriptures. They were living, uh, Israel was in such apostasy. These silent years that we see between Malachi and the New Testament, very dark period of time. Surely Satan had lulled them to sleep, that there was no need to study the scriptures to look and to understand the signs of the times. Jesus said that. You look to the sky to discern if there's a storm and yet you can't discern the signs of the times. It's the same thing he's saying to our generation. Look around you. You are living prophecy. It is being fulfilled at a rapid rate right now for those who care to study, to discern, and to watch. It literally is the period of time where he says, lift up your heads, for your redemption is drawing nigh. And yet, how can we not discern that? Because the enemy has used so many men and women in this generation who distort the gospel, distort scripture, and silence the bride. They say, pay no attention to that. Why? Well, because through generations, the enemy has used other people to distort. Oh, well, Jesus is returning this year or that year. Well, if they had actually been studying all of scripture, they would have never made that type of statement. People will say that to me all the time. Oh, Stephanie, people have been warning about that. They thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Well, I don't know why. I'm not sure why they thought that. Israel wasn't even born as a nation. There was zero way that Hitler could be the Antichrist. Zero, if you were studying scripture. So the fact that people were prophesying that in that time is irrelevant to the fact that you could still recognize the season, that you were to be watching and praying. So we warn Sardis, you are to watch. And if you don't, I will come on you as a thief. You see, Sardis is the church who has a reputation for being alive. She's very busy and to the outward appearance, to man, even amongst their own selves, they think they're okay. They believe that they're clean, that they have been cleaned, that they're healthy. Yet the truth was that is not the way the bridegroom sees them at all. They are defiled. Many of them are not even worthy of him. They have not kept him first. They are a mere reflection 
of their surroundings of the world and not the word. And do you understand the problem here is that we don't see any mention here of doctrinal problems or even persecution in Sardis. Why? Well, it suggests complacency was the primary factor to her decline. She relies on her past deeds and her worldly image and what people think about her. That's what she relies upon. There's no persecution coming to Sardis. Her goal is to fit in with the world. Everybody's my friend. Everybody's welcome. Doesn't matter how you live or whether you change or what you believe. We should all be uniting together. I'm not going to say anything to offend you. You're not my business. There's no persecution coming to Sardis. And so unfortunately, they are so puffed up in their mind with who they think they are that they can't even recognize their spiritual decline. And they became totally ineffective. And yet, Yeshua, Jesus doesn't cast this church aside as wayward and hopeless. No, he reminds her. He reminds her of what she needs to do, that he is there waiting and ready to forgive her and to purify her, to clean her, to strengthen her, that she can receive these white wedding garments only if she repents and returns, not if she continues to defend herself and continue in her deception. Though Jesus acknowledged that some in the church had not soiled their garments, it still seems that the overall church had little to no effect on the world. They just looked like the world. In fact, they had discarded their inward preparations, the ornaments, their worship, their instruction, their fellowship, their evangelism, everything that they were called to do, built and rooted in the truth of who Christ is according to the pattern of his word that he had given, they had cast that all aside. They became so caught up in doing church that they had just cast the bridegroom aside all together. And yet Jesus implores her, wake up, wake up, repent, return. We have to be taking careful inventory of us individually and how we are corporately as the church. Keep me first. The next thing he says, do not be afraid. The second message he gives to his bride during the betrothal phase is do not be afraid. Look, over the centuries, the church, the individuals within the church have wrestled against fear. It's the fear of persecution. It's the fear of suffering. It's the fear of being ineffective. It's the fear of our own weaknesses. And as we look now at these next two churches, the bridegroom is going to give messages to them to remind them not to fear, not to fear. We'll hear, pay attention that even in rebuke, it is out of a heart of compassion from the bridegroom to keep his bride steady, 
to remind her of her call to faithfulness, assuring her that he has already given her the victory to conquer over any fear that she may begin to feel, that her hope is in him. Chapter 2, the church of Smyrna. We look at the church of Smyrna in 2, 8 through 11. Jesus says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. See, this church was rich. They were a very wealthy, wealthy church. And yet his command to them is do not fear. Why? Because you are about to be thrown into prison and you will face tribulation. See, the church at Smyrna experienced persecution. First, she was the center of the Roman imperial cult. The Roman government seated here. And anyone who refused to say Caesar is Lord, he is God, where they were going to be severely punished. We know that Polycarp, that others were literally burned at the stake for refusing to do just that, to bow down to the government by calling them God by giving them the authority and the position of God in their life. And the second source of attack came from the unbelieving Jews who would ridicule the church, who slandered her reputation because Jesus was a Jew. And so you see, while every which direction from Jew and Gentile persecution came, the Smyrna church never gained approval of men. But she definitely receives the praise of her bridegroom. Listen, go with me for a minute to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to listen to a very profound truth that Paul is going to teach to the bride here. 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to read verse 12. Yes. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer persecution. Did you hear what Paul just said? All, not some, not just a few of you. All who truly desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You want to be set apart. You don't want to be like the world. All of those who desire to live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not might, not a slight possibility. You will be persecuted. It is of great concern when there's no persecution in your life. 
when people aren't fighting against you or mocking you. And I'm not talking about fighting against you in persecution because you're intentionally trying to be rebellious or weird or because you're um, distorting doctrine or because you're slandering people or doing evil things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what he says. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they're seeking to obey his word and all that he has commanded. Those, they will be persecuted. And if you're not, then can I lovingly tell you, you need to go sit back with the Lord again and re-examine yourself. If there is no persecution in your life at all, there is not one church that's not being persecuted in scripture that Jesus has a whole lot of good to say to. But the ones who are, he has a lot of good to say to. In fact, it's reiterated in Acts chapter 14. Flip over with me now to the book of Acts, the foundation of the early church. Acts 14. I want to look at verse, start at verse 21. I'm just going to read through 23. And when they had preached the gospel, so this is the disciples going around preaching. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. What are they teaching? What are the disciples teaching new disciples? How are they going to enter the kingdom of God? What does scripture say? According to scripture, how are we going to enter the kingdom of God? This right here will probably cause many to count the cost and go ahead and flee. Through many tribulations, persecutions, trials, hardships, this throws out the window your prosperity gospel. This seems to love to take root, especially in America today. Look, can God bless us? Absolutely. Can he bless us abundantly? Absolutely. Will God meet our needs? Yes, he will. And the Lord will bless those who he chooses to bless. But blessings aren't dictated by materialism. And he did not promise you that when you came to him that your life was going to be full of health and wealth and prosperity. Yes, those things can happen for us. But at the end of the day, the only way that he said we're coming into the kingdom of God is through tribulation through hardships, through suffering, through persecution. And if you're presenting the actual gospel to count the cost according to all that is written, you're going to understand why the way is narrow and few find it. That's not the gospel that the majority in our generation want to hear at all. And yet it's exactly what scripture says. And the church of Smyrna is not alone in facing her persecution. Other churches were enduring similar threats. True churches. 
not just churches setting up and starting off strong and then falling back into the world. Look, he assures them that in their suffering, even up to physical death, it is not final. But if they remain faithful to him, they will find victory. They're assured of it. It's guaranteed, even to the point of death, he says, I will give you the crown of life. That is what's waiting for you. And he tells them, I know your afflictions. I know your slander. Why? Because the bridegroom in his message is comforting us as the bride to tell us he truly understands. He is no stranger to persecution and suffering. Even after he's wrongly accused and slandered, even after he is tormented, <laughs> even after he is mocked and beaten and flogged and killed, he found compassion for his tormentors. He found compassion for those who persecuted him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an encouragement. Look, Jesus isn't in this prayer saying, Father, forgive them all. They're all my death. They don't understand what they're doing. They're all saved. That is not what he's saying. But pay attention to what he is offering here. Father, forgive them. In other words, Offer them forgiveness. They don't know what they're doing. And when their eyes are opened and they come to understand and they repent and they believe on me, that forgiveness shall be extended to them because they did not know what they were doing. Therefore, it is still only those who repent and come to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, rooted in the foundation of the truth of who he is that are going to enter into the kingdom. But it's the fact that even in us killing the very Son of God, that he didn't give up hope on humanity, that he didn't cast us away, that the church, that the bride, both Jew and Gentile, grafted in together was always his plan. Always. Having experienced that suffering and death himself, he can tell them, do not be afraid. I was dead, now I am alive. My outcome is your outcome. Regardless of the hardship you have to face through persecution or deadly disease in a fallen world where the curse of sin still runs rampant, you have been set free from the outcome of that. Your eternity is secure with him if your foundation is built upon him, if you're walking in obedience. Look, the church, increasingly surrounded by this evil world, can sometimes get afraid. We can be 
fearful. But Jesus, our bridegroom, sends this message and reminds us that we can conquer anything. We have been given divine authority, spiritual power by his spirit to overcome a loser who is attacking us still. He's already lost. We can be fearless in any circumstance. But it's no wonder that Satan uses fear, fear to try to affect the church and to build persecution against her. Pay attention in our day, for it's all around you. The church that lives according to God's purposes will endure persecution. But history shows us time and time again that the persecuted church, that the threatened church has only thrived. It will not change. No matter how many Christians are slaughtered, they wake up on the other side in the presence of Christ. No matter how many Christians are persecuted and martyred. It only emboldens the church now. So in the ignorance of Satan and his seed, they believe they're actually doing damage, and yet the bride only exists at his will, not man's. Therefore, she shall never cease because of man's will. The church of Philadelphia was no stranger to fear as well. And it doesn't have to be linked to trials and persecutions. Sometimes it can simply be linked to weakness. Such is the case in the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 7 through 13. A city located on the main route from Rome. It was overrun with the most beautiful pagan temples. Little Athens is what it was called. Jesus identifies himself as the one who is holy and true, much needed in a city full of paganism. Perhaps in response to their many false gods. And he reminds the bride that he alone is the source of eternal life. But don't overlook his encouragement to the church of Philadelphia, to his name. She continued to be faithful to his name and his word. And he was pleased with that. He was aware that in spite of her frailty and her weakness, she simply kept the command to endure. But the Philadelphia church, it was neither large nor very strong. In fact, her limitations were likely due to her size, likely due to her resources, perhaps because she felt all alone, surrounded by mainly pagan temples. And yet it is Jesus who does not discount her. He doesn't send her to go hire businesses to tell her how to build her numbers up or to build her programs so that more people are attracted to her. He doesn't tell her that she needs more money and resources to be effective. It's not the size of a church 
that determines her effectiveness. It's her faith in her bridegroom. If it's the size and the numbers, the biggest failure on this planet was Noah. See, Jesus is not concerned about her limited strength. He's impressed with her faithfulness. Her ability to understand that the bridegroom will provide everything she needs. And he's praising her because she's allowing his perfect power to shine in the midst of her weakness. And what happens is when the world begins to pull at us from every side and all these opinions of how we should do church and what people's flesh wants from church and what they expect to get from the church, and then the church starts declining and struggling well, then they start taking their eyes off the goal and the obedience to their bridegroom and they start looking to the world and the world's ideas for how to do things. And they forget that opposition is a part of ministry. You will be opposed. If the world hates you, Jesus said, remember it hated me first. Why? Because I testify that its deeds are evil, wicked. And yet Philadelphia was missing one thing that the bridegroom reminds them of. Maybe too much opposition blinded her and weakened her. It made her weary. Even though she remained faithful, I can almost envision their downcast faces. And for whatever reason, the warning that Jesus now gives them is don't miss the opportunity. There is an open door in front of you that no man can shut. No one can close the doors of opportunity that Jesus himself, the bridegroom himself, prepares for the church. That open door is your ministry opportunity. And it doesn't matter if man opposes you. It doesn't matter if you have the material resources. Nothing can shut that door and the effectiveness of what is to come when you walk through it, focused on your bridegroom and solely dependent upon his spirit and his power. Jesus is still placing those opportunities before his bride today. Regardless of the size of the body of your church, regardless of how much money you have coming in, your service to him and your opportunity to shine brightly to those where he has planted you is not limited to size or to material wealth, regardless of the mouthpieces used by Satan to come in and tell you otherwise. Those driven by greed, believing, truly believing, genuine believing that they are building the house of God. And yet all they're doing is laboring in vain. For unless the Lord builds the house, well, then man labors in vain. The church at Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia, yes, they endured trials. Yes, they endured 
hardships. Yes, they felt weak and weary, and yet the bridegroom noticed. He noticed. Even in her weakness, her struggles, her frailties, she was so weary. He remind, reminded her of his power that resided in her, that in her weakness, he was strong. And she had to hear her bridegroom's voice. Do not be afraid. Put your trust in me. Finally, to finish tonight, he says in his message to us, reject and resist. Reject and resist. You see, among persecution and hardships and trials and weariness, the greatest threat to the bride is false teaching. Unsound doctrine. It's the biggest danger you will ever face. Why? Because persecutions and trials and hardships and difficulties have no hold on you. They don't affect your future or your outcome. False teaching does. False teaching produces false disciples. False disciples may believe they're a disciple, but they only end up in the end becoming a foolish bridesmaid, the one who will hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. See, we have to learn to reject and resist false teaching. The Bible clearly warns that false teachers are among us. And 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2 says, many, many will follow their shameful ways. Not a few, not a few. He says, many will follow their shameful ways. False teaching does not just come from the outside, from unbelievers or from other spiritual practices. It comes from the inside. Men from your own number, Acts says, will arise among you and distort the scriptures. They're driven by greed and arrogance and power. That's why we have to be testing every man that is standing in a pulpit. Every man or woman who claims to be a teacher, who is writing books or Bible studies, Every worship artist that's writing a song built upon a doctrine for Christ, it all has to be tested. Every person writing a TV show or a movie saying that they're representing Christ, it all has to be tested. And if you find any false teaching or doctrine in it, you must resist and reject. It's extremely dangerous and it threatens the effectiveness of the bride's preparations. The church of Thyatira. The message to the church in Thyatira, known for its trade and its commerce. Lydia, if you remember, was from Thyatira. Jesus represents himself to this church as the son of God whose eyes are like fire and his feet are like bronze. What is he saying here? 
He's saying, I am the refiner. I am the one who judges, who is making judgment upon my bride, upon my own body. His eyes are like blazing fire, his feet like bronze, speaking of judgment. Now look, Thyatira in Revelation 2 is a busy church. It is a busy church. And unlike Sardis, it seems that their busyness was more than just everyday religious activity. There was a growing ministry in Thyatira in the name of Christ. It demonstrated love and faith and perseverance. Jesus walks among this lampstand and he is going to find something quite disturbing here. The church has permitted a false prophetess to teach false doctrine. And it's leading believers into idolatry and into sexual immorality. And so under the influence of this so-called prophetess, the bride is now forgetting her bridegroom. She is no longer remaining pure and set apart. Now it's unlikely that this woman that Jesus is referring to here is actually named Jezebel. This seems to be a play again on words back to the Old Testament to get them to understand that she represents someone of the same spirit, led by the same spirit, the Queen Jezebel. This is Thyatira. Queen Jezebel was the one who introduced Baal worship into Israel, and it enticed God's people and led them away into spiritual harlotry, into sexual immorality. 1 Kings 16 will tell you that account. This Jezebel of Thyatira wields that exact same power. She claims to be a prophetess. See, there was no problem. They knew that there were prophetesses, women with the gift of prophecy. They, 1 Corinthians, all through Corinthians, Paul teaches about women who will prophesy covering their head or they didn't need to. Their hair was their glory. Women were going to prophesy and to pray. Um, the New Testament angel prophesies that in the last days, God would pour his spirit out upon his sons and his daughters. He doesn't just say men. And they will prophesy. But what he says is she's false. And what's happened is she's coaxing the members of the church away from the word from sound doctrine, from obeying all that Christ commands, and she's convincing them that sexual immorality and practicing paganism, new age practices are acceptable to God, that it's not very dangerous, that God is not going to care. And see, those same false teachings, they're not dead today. A little leaven has ruined the whole batch. They took root. And the more that we have allowed them to spread in the church, we have come to the times of the apostasy bride. 
all these false teachings and new age teachings and doctrines of demons from Jezebel spirits are among us. False teaching is Satan's tool. It is his weapon. It ultimately, at the end of the day, denies that Jesus is actually Lord. What does that mean? Not just saying that Jesus is Lord. You can call him Lord. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. It denies that Jesus is Lord because it says you don't really have the authority over our lives and what we're doing. So we haven't really made him Lord, even if we confess it with our mouth. We don't really believe because there's no obedience. It doesn't play out. See, false teaching corrupts the bride. It turns her away from the loving attention that she's supposed to be giving her bridegroom. It's meant to leave her raped and pillaged and torn asunder like we studied in Judges, like the wife who's dying at the door. She never makes it in. And yet it is the church who has been called and given the responsibility to be on guard against any false teaching and unsound doctrine by leaning on Jesus, by abiding in his spirit, by remaining in his word. That alone is what causes us to remain faithful because daily the world is going to entice us to compromise and to tolerate. They are going to pound us with false teachings and unsound doctrine and things that look harmless, that lead us into spiritual adultery, to golden calves. And yet we're in the betrothal phase. We have made a pledge to Christ that we would remain set apart and pure with eyes only for him, a heart sold out to him, longing for his return. Pergamum. Pergamum known for its religion. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. It housed some of the finest pagan temples in the world. Like Smyrna, though, Pergamum does suffer persecution. And yet, it remains true to Christ, even in the face of persecution. It remains true to Christ. Look at verse 13 in Revelation 2. Jesus offers them encouragement. He offers his bride, saying that he knows her suffering. In other words, he understands the challenges of living in a world, not just a city full of fine pagan temples, but where Satan actually dwells. He understands that Satan is the father of persecution. He is the spirit behind persecution. And although Pergamum, yes, endured persecution, 
And they stood on the name of Christ. They're not denying his name. We have to understand this. Lest we keep falling for these things of people saying, well, we call him Lord. We say we believe in Jesus. Of course, every church here believed, said they believed in Jesus. They're not, they're not building a pagan temple here. Although they endured persecution for his name's sake, Jesus now comes to them to warn about a subtle threat. A group within the church has now compromised its faith. And they compromise their faith for the new age, for pagan worship. There's idol worship that's going on. There's sexually immoral behavior that's going on. Therefore, the bride who is committed to remain set apart and pure and holy, well, now she's allowed herself to become defiled from within. Interestingly enough, that word Pergamum means married. So a church with a name built on the relationship covenant with God and your status as the married one has now defiled herself. I want you to <clears throat> look again. Sorry. I thought I had my water with me. I guess I didn't. Um, I want you to look as we're getting ready to close now at this section of scripture and notice in Revelation 2 here, 12 through um, 17, I want you to notice that there is nowhere where um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was looking in the scripture. Oh, I want you to notice that there's nowhere here in this scripture in Revelation 2 where he is chastising them for false doctrine, that they were standing in a pulpit teaching false doctrine or that they even believed false doctrine, that they believed in this false doctrine. There's nowhere. They're not accused of that. They're not accused of believing false doctrine. They're not accused of teaching false doctrine. They're accused of tolerating it. They're accused of allowing it. That's what the focus on this. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Look, God is saying flat out, I hate these things. Yes, God hates. He absolutely hates. There's a lot of things he hates. There's a lot of things that are an abomination to him. So whenever someone tells you, well, God is only love. No, he's not. No, he's not. That is a God of their own imagination that they are creating. And we will definitely run with that God. Don't tell me there, that there's things God hates. Tell me he loves everything. He says, repent. Repent. 
or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's his word. They're accused of allowing this to go on. So what is her sin? Not that she's personally teaching it. Not that she even personally says, I believe this stuff. Her sin is that she tolerates it. She has allowed it to remain among her. She refuses to confront the issue by speaking truth and love for fear that the enemy will now persecute and say you're creating division. You're publicly shaming people. This was the sin of Pergamum. The bride failed to guard against the lies. Therefore, she compromised purity. And because of that, many were now foolish bridesmaids, believing that they were okay, and yet they're on the path to hell. We cannot refuse to confront lies that infiltrate the church, to reject and resist, and to recognize a lie. You first have to understand the truth. Jesus is the truth. His word is truth. The word made flesh. Why? Because Satan's goal is to relentlessly relentlessly entice the bride, the church, to exchange the truth of Christ for a lie. He's been doing it since the garden. And yet the commitment to purity demands that we show love through truth. There is no love apart from truth. You are not loving people if you're not giving them his truth. It doesn't matter how much you and I convince ourselves that we love people. It doesn't matter how much we convince ourselves that this is a way of being kind and loving people. When you lie to people, when you refuse to point them towards the truth and correct them, even at the risk of them opposing you and rejecting you, you don't really love them and you're not showing them kindness. You love yourself because you're worried about what others, what man will think about you and whether you'll be accepted by man. And yet the bride's focus is all about being accepted by God. We have to know the truth and the church must armor up. You're going to have to aggressively protect yourself from the devastation of false teaching. You're going to have to recognize that false teachers are going to be among us and there is nothing at scripture that says you are to give them any welcome, even an ounce of an opportunity. Even if they have good intentions, you have to expose and warn and rebuke the false doctrine and false teaching. And if they do not repent, you must resist and reject. And the Bible commands that every wise bridesmaid do the same. Don't throw 
your sisters out on the line, on the front line to be wounded while you stand back behind them, hiding your light under a stand and saying, I'm proud of you. You keep taking that stand, but I'm not willing to stand in unity with you. We're called to stand in unity and to attend the bride together, steadfastly grounded in the truth. Otherwise, we end up like the last church, Laodicea. The final message from the bridegroom to this church. Spiritual deterioration, wealthy Laodicea. Interestingly enough, Jesus identified himself as the amen, the faithful and the true witness. He was the only truth. The originator of all creation. It makes me wonder what was being taught around Laodicea. Remember, Jesus tells everyone that he is the truth. So before we focus on Laodicea's shortcomings, notice Jesus has nothing good to say to her. Nothing. See, this flies in the face of those who say that a messenger that God sends, if they are not saying something good to the church, if it's just warning and rebuke and it feels all negative, then they can't be from God. Wrong. There is nothing good said to Laodicea, who, by the way, is a church. But he does again offer her hope. And anyone that comes to you and brings a warning or a rebuke or a correction or exposes should always offer you hope by calling you back to repentance, to return to the bridegroom and to remain. Therefore, Jesus says, do not despise my discipline, Laodicea. Do not resent my rebuke. Why does he say that? Because that's the human flesh. It's interesting to me. We will not reject and resent false teaching and things that tickle our ears sent from Satan, but we will definitely reject and resist and resent the messages sent from God if it doesn't tickle our ears. He tells them a father disciplines the one he loves. Though they are harsh, the words to the church of Laodicea are a harsh rebuke. They are a harsh reality. They are not meant to condemn. Condemn means that you have no hope. That you have no hope. And Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it. Why? Because we're already condemned. We already stand condemned. We were without hope. And Jesus came into the world to offer us hope that those who are already condemned can find a way to be restored. Therefore, how ridiculous would it be to send Jesus into the world to recondemn it? He's not here to condemn the world. He is here to rebuke the world. 
He is here to expose our sins and to draw us to repentance, to find the hope and the restoration that we need. Therefore, Laodicea, he tells them, he rebukes them, he corrects them, but it was meant to inspire them that if they really loved him and desired him, they would return. No one receives a more severe rebuke, though, than Laodicea. Lukewarm. And in fact, these harsh words that he speaks and not one good thing is said to them is necessary. Why? It's necessary to wake them from their false reality and the grave reality of their actual spiritual condition. And we, in 2021, we live among the Laodicean church. We are in the apostasy deceived by their pride and their materialism. They depended on themselves. They believed they were right. They had need of nothing. The bridegroom was just a name that they used. They were so comfortable that they no longer really saw their need for utter dependency upon Christ. In fact, she was so secure in her own ability and her own resources she thought she had everything she needed and she was in need of nothing. And so she pushes Jesus aside to build his church her own way. To do church her own way. In fact, when I tell you this is the one church that Jesus is not walking among, he stands at the door and he knocks. He has been pushed out side of his own church for the sake of man's opinion doing church instead of being church see we have to understand that we cannot measure our success as a church by human standards financial success that promotes a system contrary to god's kingdom system Bigger is not always better, by the way. I've heard it in ministry my whole, for all the years I've been in ministry. The arrogance and the pride for many men that I worked for. We're growing our church and we're bigger and that means God's with us. And we've got more money and look at that little church over there just dying off. They don't, and they're just, they're not budging on the word. They're not, they're not compromising for the world to try to do different things to get them in. And I just sit there and shake my head. And then I think, spoken like a true Laodicean. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't be so stuck in doctrines of men traditions of men that have always been in the church and that those need to change, meaning we need to repent and get away from those and actually get back to the truth of Scripture. Denominations have been doing that for centuries as well. But I'm talking about the faithful church that just stands on the Word of God and the love for the bridegroom, and they don't care about entertaining the world at all. That's not their goal. Their heart is solely for the bridegroom. Worship is not for you. It's for him. 
They don't care whether you liked the worship that day. They weren't considering you when worship was being planned for that day. And if they were, well, then I'm very concerned for them. And Jesus exposes Laodicea's actual success and condition. And he says, you're actually wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. You are the unbelievers. None of you really know me. And he gives them this spiritual lesson, this message from the bridegroom that his economy isn't built on man's money or numbers written by man in a book for how many worldly people they brought in to say some sinner's prayer. No. His currency and his kingdom is built on two things and two things alone. Faith and obedience. And that's it. No wonder Satan wants to push a false teaching that faith plus obedience equals a false gospel. Of course he wants that to be believed because he can promote and he can create a ton of false bridesmaids. But the currency is faith. Jesus is the only way in. Enter through the narrow gate, for narrow is the gate and difficult, narrow the way that leads to eternal life. It's funny, I was telling the girls in my study yesterday teaching this. It literally takes us back all the way to a childhood song. Most of you have probably heard it before. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And I think, really? It was always that simple? That's literally the kingdom of God? Trust, that's faith. And obey, that's proof that you really have faith. Narrow, yes, is the gate to enter in, but he doesn't just say narrow is the gate. He says narrow is the way, and the way is difficult, and few find it. Why? Because they're not interested in a difficult way. They're not interested in tribulation and hardship and trials that lead us into the kingdom and persecution. Faith and obedience is the currency of Christ kingdom alone built upon the grace of his work alone. If you depend on spiritual wealth or numbers, you will find yourself spiritually bankrupt as a bride. And he fervently instructs this bride to repent. Repent of your sin. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to acknowledge that Jesus actually isn't even among you, that he's standing at the door knocking. 
And if you will hear his voice and you will let him come in and fan the lukewarm coals into a flame so that you are passionate for your bridegroom again. If you'll humbly open the door and let him back in, he is coming back into relationship with you. It's not because he's moved. We have. We have. Infatuated with the world, she was tolerating everything, never speaking out. She was neither hot nor cold, not useful for the bridegroom at all. She cared about the world and its pleasures and what it thought about her. Everybody's welcome. Doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody's welcome. Doesn't matter if you want to change. Comfortable with her wealth. And yet she's foolish. The foolish bridesmaid to her own blindness. She cannot see herself for what she really is. She will not test it back to really even the world word. And because of that, Jesus says, I am going to vomit you from my mouth. That is the saddest thing. Out of all these messages we've heard, it's the saddest message to hear from a bridegroom. I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. You sicken me. You are not really my bride. You do not really love me. If you do, then you'll let me hear your, your, heal your spiritual blindness. You'll let me give you the garments that you need. You will repent and return. So as we conclude tonight with our messages from the bridegroom to his bride meant to stay with us during this entire caduceian phase, this betrothal period, listen to the heart from our bridegroom. The encouragement of what pleases him because he loves us, that he knows our sufferings and our difficulties, that he loves us, what our future holds and the hope that he has and what is going to be offered to us who overcome. But do not miss the warnings and the rebukes of those things that displease him and lead us into adultery to the fact that one day we may find that we're a foolish bridesmaid. Our job, our call in this time and season of awakening is to return to our bridegroom, to wake up, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to attend the bride faithfully, and above all, to be found to be a wise bridesmaid, a wise virgin who used her betrothal time well, to stay set apart and pure, to become holy, and to endure even in the midst of persecution and trials and hardships. Why? Our bridegroom still walks among the lampstands. And he's calling us to repent and be cleansed. For he has not found us faithful yet. But the door is quickly closing. And it is only the remnant that will be found ready. 
the wise bridesmaids will be the only ones with their lamps with oil and time is running out. So why is it important that we get back to attending her properly? To being different and set apart in this betrothal period? Because the divine wedding day is drawing near. I want to thank you girls so much for joining me tonight in week five of attending the Bride of Christ and becoming a wise bridesmaid. Next week is our last week in this study. We'll finish this next week hearing the final um, lesson on our bridegroom's return. And then we're going to have a little break. There will be some pop-ups through the summer on the studies but I will be taking this time to start preparing for our women's retreat in September and what the Lord has in store there and writing the fall study that I announced. This fall, the Lord has called me to begin to write a women's Bible study called Armor Up. We're going to be going through the book of Ephesians. Why? Because the days are only about to get darker and the persecution is only about to get stronger. And now that we are awake and that we are turning to remain and that our lamps are filled with oil and that we are coming back into attending the bride of Christ as that final remnant, it is time to armor up so that we do not go down in this battle. Why? Because we have been assured victory. I look forward to seeing you girls on She Rises. And for those of you who can join us here again next week for the study, if not, thank you to all of you who spend time digging into the Word with us, either here or on our YouTube channel or on our podcast. Blessings on your week.